morning, everybody. Uh, Mike and I have been chatting at the front, so I don't know if you picked up any of that on our on microphone, but if you did, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you didn't, you'll never know what we were talking about. Uh, just before I start, a couple of things. One is back from holiday for me, so I'm feeling reasonably rested. Had a good time with some friends in Guernsey. Uh, I know you wanted to know that, um, so I'm just letting you know. Um, the other thing I just thought I would bring you up to speed with a little bit is, uh, is what's happening with my wife, Janie, who uh, you might have noticed hasn't been around for the last few weeks. Um, it's not that we've fallen out or don't love each other or there's a great trouble in the Rosier household. It's more the fact that, if you recall, she had a hip operation way back in May, uh, and that's a really long rehab that she's currently, uh, I was going to say enjoying, but it's more enduring, I think. Uh, so she is able to get around, but whenever she, she gets around or does anything, she gets worn out really, really quickly. She's just not quite able to get back into church life just yet. So she is for us, not against us, but like God. Uh, she is like God, actually. In many ways, she loves me unconditionally, which is great. Um, but she... Uh, <laughs> She, uh, she will be back as soon as she possibly can, but just so you know, that's why the Rosie family is a bit fragmented at the moment. Um, just on that note, I wanted to say a personal thank you to Atonya, actually, just to embarrass you. Uh, Mike mentioned this during the uh, notices time, but Atonya, I know, is a massive prayer warrior, and I want to add my personal thanks to you, Atonya, for continually, often, regularly praying for us as a family. I know you've been praying solidly for Janie, so you're going to be a big miss in terms of having you around, but keep praying. Wonderful. I'll take that. <laughs> Uh, and the other final thing I wanted to mention, just in terms of family news, is apparently it's also Elisha and Joe's last Sunday with us today. We've just found out, or I've just found out. They're off to Liverpool. Uh, if there's anybody else secretly on their way and I don't know about it, just come and see me afterwards. But do get around these guys at the end. Uh, they've been around us a shortish while, but really tucked into the church, served wholeheartedly, become known, become loved, uh, and have loved really well as well. So great, great to have you guys around. Sorry you're moving on. And I hate saying goodbye to everybody, actually. I don't like it. I don't like people going because we get such great community, but it's part, part of church life. And it's in the Bible, isn't it, when, when Paul and the others were saying goodbye to the people they've done mission with. Their hearts broke because of such love between them. So it is in there. We don't like it. It's great to send people with a blessing, but we also love to welcome as well. And as, as Mike alluded to, that's going to come probably more in September when a whole load of water loader more people. whole load of water loader more people start coming. So if you're new here today, uh, again, a warm welcome to you. Hopefully you're enjoying everything that you've, uh, you've encountered so far. And this is the part of the meeting when we're going to hear something from the Word of God, the Bible. And uh, we're drawing to a close, actually. This is the final week in our series in Ruth. And uh, the title of my message this morning is The Story Behind the Story Behind the Story. The story behind the story behind the story. And the reason that that's the title I've given it, as we'll see, is because the book of Ruth has a slightly unusual finale to it that I'm just going to unravel very briefly as we go through. Now, as we do close, I hope you'll uh, agree with me that going through Ruth has been a really, really rich experience. Sometimes there are some books in the Bible that don't get the press, the publicity that other books in the Bible might. The stories aren't quite as famous or engaging or enjoyable. But this is one of those stories where... It's a small little story, but it's been a totally amazing story, and I think it's done us real good as a church to go through it. And if you recall, it's a story about ordinary, ordinary people in life having genuine struggles in life, more of that in, in a moment, which led them to take action, which caused them to encounter tragedy, which caused them to take some different action, which caused some of them to have bitterness towards God, which caused the whole thing to look like God was out of control, not in the picture, and everything was going wrong. God, if you like, was a potential villain in the piece in this story, because things looked like they were going awry. It looked like he didn't love people. 
and it looked like he was distant and dis disinterested in the people in the story. And that is often what people think about God today in our culture, that God is distant, that he's disinterested, he doesn't love people, he's not for us, he is against us, and there's a lot of bitterness towards God that we encounter in our lives today in our culture. But in this story, as we know, God turns everything round. He redeems the situation. He demonstrates loyalty. He demonstrates love. He demonstrates kindness. He shows that he's control of the whole thing, and he pulls everything round to end up being the hero in the story. And God is still doing that in people's lives today as well. When we get a glimpse of who God is, and I want to show us a little bit of what he's like a little bit later on, when we get a glimpse of who God is, hearts change towards him, and lives can get turned round. And all of a sudden, bitterness that we may have towards God suddenly changes into God is for us and not against us. He does love us. He's great. Let's follow him the rest of our days. So that's uh, roughly what we've been looking at. Just in terms of the background to the story for one final time, so that any of us that are here that haven't heard any of the story of Ruth so far don't feel as though you're kind of going to get washed over in this message. It is all about the ordinary people. Who are the ordinary people in our story? Well, it started off with a family, a family headed up by a guy called Elimelech, who was the husband of the family, married to a woman called Naomi, who was his wife, and they had two sons, Marlon and Kilion. And they lived in Bethlehem, uh, and there was famine in the land of Bethlehem, so Elimelech led his family out to Moab, where there was more prosperity, more food, in order to find a better life. But it didn't go well for them. In fact, it went really rubbish, because what happened was that Elimelech died. We don't know the details, but he died. And then uh, Marlon and Kilion, even though they married a couple of local girls, Orpah and Ruth, they died as well. So all of a sudden, you've got Naomi, the uh, widowed wife of Elimelech, You've got Ruth, the widowed wife of one of, uh, of Orpah, one of uh, Marlon or Achillion, we don't know which one, and Ruth, the widowed wife of one of those sons as well. Three widows, three single woman, women now, who knew what it was to have a partner along their, alongside, now completely without their partner. And in a culture where there was male domination and you needed the man to look after you and care for you and provide for you and support you and enable you to have something of a family lineage that was to come, that was a really hard place to be. And we've heard that story, that introduction, so much week on week on week in Oasis Church that we need to be careful that we don't forget how hard it was. It was hard. It was a wrench. And... Uh, Jean, when she preached last week, uh, reminded us of something that some, that, that some of us do know, which is that she was widowed in her life at quite a young age, and that was really, really tough for her. And she was all over the place, but she reached out to God in order to give us some kind of strength through what was a horrendous experience for her. So we don't, we don't want to skip over this background. This background is a really hard background to cope with. And as an aside, by the way, I listened to Jean's preach online on Friday when I was back from holiday. Uh, if you haven't heard it, if you weren't here last week, get online and listen to Jean's preach last Sunday. It is magnificent. It's full of authority. It's full of weight. It's full of power. It's full of the Holy Spirit. When you listen to that preach, you will genuinely believe what she's saying because it's as if Jesus is speaking to us through her. So I, I, can't highly, I can't commend it highly enough. I thought it was a really powerful uh, and amazing message. So thank you to Jean publicly from me on that one. Okay, so that's the ordinary people. In terms of the, uh, the, who's involved in the story of Ruth, four main characters. Four main characters that we've looked at as we've gone through. First one is Naomi. Naomi was the, uh, the wife of Elimelech, uh, widowed, of course, as I've just said. She's the woman who became very, very bitter towards God. And why wouldn't you? when your husband and your two sons have both died. That's a natural response by many towards God when things don't go well. 
bitterness towards God. We unpacked that a few weeks ago. She returned home to Bethlehem, stripped of everything, thinking that her world was completely done in. That was Naomi. Then you've got Ruth, the second main female character in the book, one of the daughters-in-law of Naomi. And she was the one who made the unbelievable decision to stick with Ruth, with Naomi, sorry, when Naomi planned to go back to Bethlehem. And I say unbelievable apart from one thing, which is this, that there is a sense as you read the book of Ruth that somewhere along the line in her experience during her time in Moab, she had an encounter with God, Naomi's God. Because she turned away from, if you like, a culture and a society that was completely against God and gave herself to Naomi and to God, to following God. It was a complete reversal. It's as close to an Old Testament conversion as you will find in the Bible. Someone who didn't know anything about God, the love of God, the goodness of God, saying, I've seen something in him and I'm going to follow you, Naomi. I'm going to be loyal to you and I'm going to be loyal to your God as well. And that loyalty is something that has headlined the whole of the book of Ruth. It's a word called hesed. It means loyal, loving kindness. We keep hearing about that word every single week. It's something that marks the character of God. It's something that we'll concentrate right at the end of today's message. So that's Ruth. And we also found that Ruth, as a result, I would suggest, of this encounter with God, this conversion experience, this loyalty that she wanted to demonstrate towards God, herself lived out a life of love and loyalty. She was loyal to Naomi, and then she loyally and faithfully served God in her culture such that she ended up with a reputation of being a woman of noble character. Something about her, her godliness, turned heads towards her. And that woman, even though she's an immigrant, an alien, if you like, someone who has come over from Calais to UK, if you want to envisage it in those terms, someone who wouldn't necessarily have been as accepted by everyone in the new culture that she was in, they saw her and saw something of God in her and said, she is a good egg. She's a woman of noble character. It was God's character in her that had done that. So she's the second character that we've been looking at through the book of Ruth. Third is Boaz. Boaz was a man, just in case you didn't know that, uh, and he was a surprise entry into the book of Ruth because he was a guy with a, a previously unknown family connection to Naomi and that family. And he became the man who could potentially redeem the situation by marrying Ruth and thereby giving Ruth a son that would, if you like, become a surrogate son to Naomi in that culture such that her family line would therefore carry on till kingdom come. He became the man that turned it all upside down. He was an older guy, it would appear. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a done deal. We've heard about how Boaz was very cunning and clever and godly in how he managed to weave a relationship in with Ruth and managed to, to marry her. They had a son, they fell for each other, and Obed was born. Obed, which means servant of God. All fairy tale stuff. This is a, the turnaround in the story. So that's Boaz. And then finally, you've got God. You've got God. And all through the book of Ruth, the writer, who could be male or female, and we think it might have been a woman that wrote this book, has given us detail and headline to draw us into the story and to draw us into questions about, well, what's going on here? Can we connect with these ordinary people? Is there something that we can learn about how God is, about life in general? And all through the book, God is there, doing things invisibly to turn the situation around. And God isn't always present in books of the Bible. The book of Esther is a good example. He's not mentioned at all. Song of Psalms, he's kind of mentioned by, uh, by, by inference. In this uh, book, he is mentioned, 
in many different ways. But it's not always evident what he's doing. And sometimes he looks as though he's not interested. He looks as though he's a silent bystander, not really in control of things. But suddenly he comes round and pulls it all through. And this is what happens in this story. God pulls it all through. God redeems the situation. God gives uh, Boaz and Ruth Obed. Everything works out to the good. And God is shown to be someone that is not out of control, that is not disinterested, that doesn't not love people, if that's not too dodgy thing to say with a double negative, but actually is for us and not against us. And again, in our culture today, many people will think that life goes on, circumstances happen, God is absent, God is silent, God is not present. Things go wrong. Things might be going wrong in your life today, which makes you think there is no God. He doesn't love me, he's not for me, he's out of control, there is no God. That kind of thinking can go on in our minds. But God is there, God does love us, God is for us, and he's always working for our good. It's proven in this story, and it's proven in many people's stories in life in general. Romans 8.28, many of us will know it. For we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So that's summary of the book of Ruth. Brief bit of the story, brief reminder of the characters involved. We're heading to the final part of the story today, the conclusion, the big finale of the story of Ruth. How's it all going to end? It's going to end like this, with five verses of family tree. Five verses of family tree. Unemotional information, genealogy, a little bit anticlimactic, perhaps. This is how the author of Ruth has decided to finish this wonderful story. So it's a little bit surprising. But the author of Ruth has decided that they want the story to finish like this because they want us to see something that the original readers of Ruth wanted to see and that we today want to see as well. Well, what is it that we're going to find out? Well, let's read the genealogy and then we'll see what, if anything, we can find as a result of reading it. So it's Luke chapter 4, verse 18 to 22. My glasses are going to go on at this point, otherwise I might get some of the names wrong. Uh, it's on the screen behind me if you want to follow. It says this, This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Narshon, Narshon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Some of the names on that list you might be familiar with, others you may not be. So this is the genealogy that we're going to look at briefly this morning. Now before we do that, just to lighten things up a little bit, I thought it would be interesting for us to have a look at my own genealogy. I know, you're quite eager now to know a little bit more about me. Before we get to that slide with the genealogy on, and it's coming in a moment, just to let you know that my real name is not Gus. My real name is Angus. Now, some of you may know that already. Some of you may not. I preached or spoke recently at Bluecoat Blue School in Harborn, uh, and part of my introduction there was then trying to guess what Gus stood for. I had every derivation of Gus you could possibly imagine, apart from Angus, interestingly enough. So I had Gustav, I had Gustavio, had Gustio, had Gustavius, I had Gusty, which I thought was a bit dodgy. Uh, I had Gusinda, um, Augustus, but I didn't get Angus. So I am Angus, uh, on Family Tree I should be Angus. If you throw the Family Tree slide up, I don't know if you can read that actually, I hoped you could. But uh, at the bottom there, I've put my name as Gus so that you know who I am, but officially I'm Angus Rosier. Okay, there's my Family Tree. If you can see it, bottom left-hand corner, I'm married to Janie. 
Eileen Bilson as she was, Gus Rosier, two uh, children, Solomon Joseph Rosier, here today, and Isabella Leanne, not here today, fragmented family. I've told you why that's the case. And you can see the family lineage a little bit, going backwards. So my mum's uh, mum and dad were called Norman Rosier and Ruth Phillips, if you can see that. My granddad's mum and dad, which would be my great-grandparents, were called Henry Alfred Rosier and Martha White, which is where my dad's middle name come from. Another generation back, great-granddad's dad was William Henry Rosier. He was married to Julia Preston. And right back at the top, you've got Joseph Rosier, born in 1817. He would be my great-great-great-grandfather. So I've got nearly 200 years of lineage in my family that I can go back through. If I was uh, quoting Rosier 1 verse 1 in the Bible, it might say something like this. Joseph was the father of William Henry. William Henry, the father of Henry Alfred. Henry Alfred, the father of Norman. Norman, the father of Donald White. Donald White, the father of Angus. And of course, Angus, the father of Solomon Joseph. As far as we know, it doesn't go any further than that. As far as we know. <laughs> I did plan to say that. The, uh, that's not a slogan at all, by the way. That was just a point of humour, just in case you were wondering. Now, the reason I've shared that with you is to demonstrate that largely in life, when people share with you their family trees, it's really boring. <laughs> and that, that is true, and that's entirely why I did it. Most of you have been thinking, well, all right, Gus, it's a bit indulgent, really. We're not really that interested in your family tree. There's nothing interested on there other than a whole load of names. And that's what's generally the case when people show you their family tree. It's only, in fact, when you get celebrities, like they do on the BBC TV show, Who Do You Think You Are?, with some kind of history that's even vaguely interesting that we start getting interested. That's the case, too. Martin Freeman is a good example of that, for example. He's, he was on one of the series of Who Do You Think You Are, which apparently started again last week, so I hear, as I was doing my research. Uh, but Martin Freeman, from uh, The Hobbit and Sherlock, he's got a, a, a great-grandfather who was a blind church organist. Nothing wrong with that, of course. Uh, interesting enough and truly, my own church in Woking, where I grew up in Surrey, also had a blind church organist. He was the most phenomenal organist I've ever heard play. So there just seemed to be something about blind people that have some musical gifting sometimes. But what was interesting about Martin Freeman's great-granddad was that apparently he fathered 21 children by three different wives in his lifetime. And in 1894, he disappeared, leaving his then second wife with nine children to look after. I reckon the reason he disappeared is because he was up to mischief with his probably third wife. The vicar had found out and he was out to get him, but who knows. But that's an example of someone with a bit of a story found out by the BBC research people and us getting slightly, ever so slightly interested in it, ever so slightly. I mean, most of you don't even look that interested about that particular thing. So why would the reader, the writer of Ruth, end this wonderful short story in Ruth with a genealogy. Because let's face it, it's boring, isn't it? It's a boring end to the story. It's the bit you think, oh, I'll finish the story. I'm not even, even going to bother reading that bit. And this happens quite a lot in the Bible as well, actually. There are large amounts of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, where you get huge lists of father of that, father of the other, father of the other, father of the other, and huge lists of people that might have gone out to battle with David or whatever. Huge, boring bits in the Bible with all sorts of detail about how to present yourself in the temple and things that you're not allowed to do before God and all that kind of stuff. There's loads of stuff in the Bible that's really, really boring. So why is it in there? Why is it in there? And I'll tell you why it's in there. Because it provides substance to everything else that's going on in the Bible that isn't really, really boring. Because there's loads of action and adventure in the Bible. 
There's loads of wonderful poetry. There's loads of miracles and things that turn your head. There's loads of things that, I can't believe that happened. I, I'm not sure that happened. This can't be true. A donkey can't talk, can it? Can a Red Sea really divide? I'm not sure it can. Those sorts of things are in the Bible. But when they are matched up with, balanced by, these other bits in the Bible which have historical substance and context, all of a sudden we can believe in the bit that we know is boring because it's true, and therefore we can start to believe more in the other bits as well. So it's God's way of framing the two together to make us believe that the Bible is the Word of God, does want us to pay attention to it, and there's a lot to say in there that's good and can be life-changing. So that's why we have these kind of things in the Bible. In Ruth, then, why did the writer of Ruth, of Ruth finish up with a genealogy? If I was the writer of Ruth, I would, have, I, would have, I would have done something more. I would have said, look, okay, Obed's been born. Boaz and Ruth are really, really happy. Naomi's really, really happy. Let's hear a little bit, a bit more about Obed. Let's hear about how he grew up to be a healthy, handsome, wonderful young man, a man of noble character, similar to mum and dad, a man who, who found a wife who's probably a lovely lady. They had six children. The six children went to university here, went to work there, you know, served on the streets all, all over the place. You want more story about Obed. You want the next, the next part of the story. But you don't get anything about Obed. You don't get anything about Ruth, apart from the book of Ruth. It all stops there. You don't get anything about Boaz. You don't get anything about Naomi. All you get at the end of Ruth is this genealogy. Why? Why is it there? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Because the genealogy is something that, if you like, points to something else. It's pointing to something else. There's a pointer going on here to the readers of Ruth and to us today. And it's the story behind the story behind the story that it points to. There's an extraordinary conclusion in play, bigger than the story of Obed himself being born, which in and of itself is a great story, because it's a story that is euphoric out of tragedy. It's a story, Obed being born, which no one could ever have seen would happen. And yet God orchestrated things such that it did happen. So even though you've got a baby, Obed, being born at all, that's a good headline. That's a good finale to the story. So that's one in and of itself, a story in and of itself. But then there's another story going on to the original readers of Ruth. And the other story is this baby Obed is actually in the line of a king that's coming to Israel. A king that's coming to Israel. Who's the king that's coming to Israel? King David. Who is King David? Well, he's only probably the most, the most famous, wonderful and amazing king that Israel has ever had. He's the king. He's the one. And the story behind the story is that Obed is in the family line of King David. That's the story behind the story. But to us looking in, there's another story going on. It's the story behind the story behind the story. And what's that? And you've probably already worked it out. That there's another king coming as well. Not a king just for Israel, but a king for the whole earth, for all creation, for all time. He's coming as well. He's coming. The original readers of Ruth wouldn't have known that. They'd have just seen the euphoric man, Obed, was in the line of David. That's amazing enough. Royalty. God's in control. It looked like it was out of control, but he was in control. He turned it all around. But as we read today, we see there's another king coming. A king who's greater even than David himself. A king of a creation. A king of the whole earth. A king for you and me. A king for generations past, present and future. There's another king coming. And that king, of course, is Jesus Christ. That is the story behind the story behind the story. Original readers of Ruth only get the story behind the story. We today, because we're the other side of the cross of Christ, get the story behind the story behind the story. That is the headline. That's the extraordinary news 
of the book of Ruth. We can read it through three lenses. The story in and of itself, it's amazing. Let's keep reading it and being encouraged by it. Ordinary people feeling disaffected, unloved, bitter towards God. God turns it around. Here's the son. Everything's fantastic. That's a story. The son is in the line of David, the greatest king that Israel has ever had. That's a story, and it's an amazing thing. And then for us today, we can see that Jesus is coming as a result of the birth of Obed, as a result of the birth of David, and then Jesus comes and changes everything. The story behind the story behind the story. So what then? So what? All you've done is basically explain the genealogy, and that's entirely it, because that's why it's there. That's why the writer of Ruth has put it there, in order for us to hear that headline. But where does it leave us today? I'll tell you where it leaves us. It leads us back at the word hesed. It leads us back at the word hesed, the title word, the headline word of the book of Ruth as we've looked at it week on week on week. Hesed. Hesed, the loyal, loving kindness demonstrated by people, demonstrated by God. It's a word that we need to grasp, we need to learn, and we need to imbibe if we are able to do that. Really soak in. Hesed is all through the book of Luke. Hesed is a word that summarizes how God behaves towards the main characters in the book. We've heard about Naomi, we've heard about Ruth, we've heard about Boaz. As we go through the, the book, the Hesed love of God, the loyal, loving kindness of God has been demonstrated to each of those. Naomi, in her bitterness, God gave her a grandson. Ruth, in her fear of abandonment and her risk in going to Bethlehem, God was loyal to her. Gave her a husband in Boaz, who, uh, who was given special honor by God as the one who was going to redeem the situation for Ruth in that situation. That's hesed. Hesed is the word that is either used by or associated to the main characters of the book in the book. You need to look up, if you've got time, Ruth 1 verse 8, Ruth 2 verse 20, Ruth 2 verse uh, 11 and 12, Ruth 3 verse 10. I haven't put the verses up on purpose. They're all in there for you to have a look at if you want to. I wanted to get to the hesed of God for us today, very quickly. The hesed of God for us today, the loyal, loving kindness of God to us today. Because that's a headline for us today. You see, God is a God who is loyal and loving and kind. God is not a distant tyrant. God is not disinterested in you and me. He is for us every single minute of every single day. And how we know that is true is because God develops a rescue plan for mankind that helps every single man and woman through history have a relationship with God. As Steve prophesied this morning... He prophesied about the curtain in the temple being torn in two. And as he was prophesying, God prompted me to go and grab this piece of black material from upstairs in the cupboards of Oasis Church. And I want you to envisage, if you can, this black material being the material in the temple. I'm not going to be able to tear it, by the way. But this is a blocker between all people, between you and God, me and God, all people across all time. It's a blocker. It signified a block between the people in the Old Testament and God. The curtain in the temple that was hanging there, stopping people getting into the Holy of Holies. In fact, only one man once a year, only one man once a year was able to go into the Holy of Holies. The high priest, he had to go through a whole lot of rituals, present himself as holy as he could possibly be, as ordained by God, in order to pay for the sins of himself and the people of Israel at that time. And this was the blocker between everybody else, that high priest, and the Holy of Holies. And Steve prophesied that this 
when Jesus died on the cross, was ripped in two. This blocker was ripped in two. I can't rip it in two. I'm just going to throw it away for a moment. It was ripped in two. There is no blocker. And that's what he's saying. The light of Jesus suddenly came shining through the crack that was torn in two. In fact, it became a gaping hole for the light of Jesus to come flooding through. That is God's goodness. That is God's kindness. That is God's love shown to all people for all time. It's a ripping of the blocker away so that nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is the headline of the book of Ruth right at the end. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Yes, there's Obed. Yes, there's King David. That's wonderful, but Jesus is coming because the hesed love of God is the headline that we all need to grasp. The hesed love of God, the loyal loving kindness of God. And the loyal loving kindness of God is us having the blocker ripped away so that there is no blocker between us and God. It's why we can kneel with vulnerability before the cross of Christ and be who we are because the veil has been torn. There is nothing we need to hide from God because Jesus has taken it away. That's why that prophetic word came as well. Vulnerability before the feet of Jesus. I love the imagery that Pete shared in worship of, of Mary, Jesus' mum, and John at the foot of the cross as Jesus was dying for them and dying for their sins. I've never seen that before. Jesus dying for the sins of Mary and the sins of John, taking all their shame, all their pain, all the things they'd never want anybody to know about. He took it and knew about it and felt it and hurt through it and died as a result through it and still said, yes, my mum, lover, John, I love you. You're the disciple that Jesus loved, aren't you? You're a great guy. I'm loving you as I'm dying here on the cross. This is the Hesed love of cross. And it's the gospel of Christ which demonstrates the Hesed love of God. It is the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel then? What is the gospel of Christ that demonstrates the Hesed love of God? Some of us here will already know. Some of us may not know, but I very quickly wanted to explain it again because there's always time and space for the gospel of Jesus. What is it? It says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, simply this, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And it says in Romans 3 verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If those two verses are true, if they're true, it means that Jesus Christ came into the world to save everyone. Jesus Christ came into the world to save everyone. Why? Because everyone, all, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, you may be someone here today that doesn't think that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You may think that, that you are uh, immune from that, that you've, you're a good guy or a good woman that you try not to hurt anybody, that you try not to make anybody feel angry or, 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 or upset anybody, and you try and lead a good life. And if that's you today, that's probably true. I try and do all of those things as well. I try and lead a good life. I try and be kind to people. I try not to hurt anybody. I try not to upset anybody. That's me as well. I'm with you on that page. I think most of us, for most of the time, try and lead our lives like that. But the verse says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is a state Sin is that God is so holy, he's so pure, he's so kind, he's so loving, he's so untouchable that even our good is like a filthy rag. It's as if we are wearing a blocker 24-7 in our lives. And however good we are, this exists, this sin barrier between us and God. And we can't get out of it. 
It's how God sees us. If you like, we're in the sin bin. We're in a pot that God calls sin. And it's no slur on you. It's no slur on me. It just is what it is. It's sin. What's the problem with that? The Bible also says in Romans 3 verse 23, Romans 6 verse 23, sorry, that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What does that mean? It doesn't sound very wholesome or enjoyable, does it? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death is black comedy, I think, by the Bible. The only reward we get for being in a sin state is death. What is death? In essence, it's separation from God. Separation from God, which starts right now if we don't know God and carries on for as long as it needs to if we never get reconciled with him, which goes beyond the grave past our physical death, which isn't that palatable. The wages of sin is death. Back to the sin blocker. If we are wearing sin, if we are engulfed by sin, if we cannot escape the sin that is on us, we are separated from God. It's the curtain in a different way. I can't have a relationship with God because this is getting in the way. I can't have a relationship with God. I want to reach out to him, but I can't have a relationship with him because sin weighs me down and makes me feel guilty. It's only if that is removed from me that I can have a relationship with God, that I can reach out for him and that he can accept me whole and pure. The wages of sin is death, is separation from God. If you are someone here today that does not have a relationship with God, doesn't know God, thinks God is against you and not for you, thinks God doesn't love you, thinks God is disinterested, thinks God doesn't even exist, you're wrong. If you're living in ignorance of God or rebellion towards God, that's what sin is. And it means that we can't have a relationship with him. We are dead in our relationship with God. That's what it means. The wages of sin is dead. We had a dead relationship with God. So what, what, how are we going to get out of it? The Bible says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. What? To save us from death. How did he do it? He came by dying on the cross. That's what he did. That's why we've had those prophetic images this morning about the cross. We started with Pete and Mary and John. Jesus on the cross. We had the torn curtain being separated in two. That's the cross. We had Keith saying, let's be vulnerable at the feet of the cross before Jesus because if Jesus has paid the price, surely we don't have to worry about anything else because we're clean before him. Jesus took our death. He took our death. He lifted it off us and he put it on himself on the cross. I'll just stick it on that stand. And he took it for us. That pain. It's on Jesus. And in exchange, we get God's goodness, God's holiness, God's purity. This is the gospel. This is the goodness of God. This is the loyal, loving kindness of God. This is the hesed of God. And that is what, as we close the book of Ruth, and as we look at every Bible story that there is, we always come back to. The gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The wages of sin is death, but, 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 the gift of God is eternal life in who? Christ Jesus. The genealogy in Ruth points to Jesus. And in fact, every single story in the Bible, whether it's boring or exciting, points to Jesus. The whole of the book of the Bible, every single one of them, is pointing to Jesus. 
Jesus is coming in the Old Testament. Jesus is coming in the Old Testament. Jesus is coming in the Old Testament. The Gospels, Jesus has arrived. Jesus is, is, is crucified on the cross. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. The book of Acts comes along. Jesus is resurrected. This is exciting. This is exciting. This is exciting. And then you get all this book, the rest of the book, which is how can we carry on our lives following Jesus for all we've got. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the headline. The author of the book of Ruth finishes with the genealogy. Yes, in her day, because she wanted to point to King David, which in itself was amazing. But for us today, we can look through the story, behind the story, behind the story, and we can see Jesus. And for three of us, that's good news. <laughs> but that's entirely what the point is. As we finish this story, we don't dwell on the story of Ruth in and of itself, although it's a great story. We don't dwell in and of itself on the story of David, although that's a great story. We always dwell on the person of Christ, because Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, people like me, people like you. We are washed clean, quote unquote, by the blood of the Lamb. There is no condemnation now for those who live in union with Christ Jesus. We are redeemed. We are rescued. We are saved. This is good news. And it's that imbibing of truth. Just like Ruth got it with her, whatever her experience was, that causes us to have the reputation, to have the reputation of being people who are lights shining in the world. Not for ourselves, because we know we've been rescued, but who? For Jesus. For Jesus. For Jesus. So every single time we look at the Bible, every single time we look at a story where God is involved, every single time we conclude, we want to conclude with Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world, and we too are lights of the world, pointing to Jesus. The question is, do we want to do it? I want to do it. I'd love you to come with me on the journey. Let's stand, and I'm going to pray. just want to shut your eyes for a moment. And uh, I did just want to give an opportunity this morning, two, two responses really. One is to say, look, if you're someone here today that doesn't know God, that you felt a connection between that illustration of trying to punch through your world, punch through stuff that's happened to you, stuff that you're doing, you're in sin, if you're honest, you know it's messed you up, you know that you fall short of the glory of God, you want to get right with God. You're loving what you're hearing about Jesus. He's the sort of person you'd love to have a relationship with. If you're in that boat this morning, you want to make a response to know God for the first time, I'd love you to raise your hand in a minute when I give the call. This is your moment to say, well, yeah, I'm just going to kneel before the, cro the, cro the cross, be vulnerable before God and say, look, I just need you and I'm willing to follow you. That's an opportunity for you today. For the rest of us, many of us here today perhaps already have some kind of understanding of what it is to be saved by Jesus. My question for you is, do you want to be a light shining for Jesus? And when I count to three in a minute, I'd just like to, you to raise your hand if, you, if the answer to that question, uh, question is yes. If it's not, it's fine. Don't raise your hand just because you think you should do because you're a Christian. Just raise it if you want to. So I'll count to three. If you want to make a response to Jesus for the first time, you've never done that before, raise your hand. I'd love to chat with you afterwards if that is you. And if you want to be someone who's going to be a light shining for Jesus because he's the best thing that's ever happened on this planet, I'd love you to raise your hand and then I'll just pray. So one, two, three, raise your hand if, that wants to be, if that's you. God, I just want to thank you for this book. 
Thank you for Ruth's story, for Naomi's story, for Boaz's story. Thank you that it's in the Bible. And thank you that it's such a thrilling story, Lord God. Thank you for the genealogy at the end. Thank you that King David's there. Thank you that it points to Jesus. And Lord God, we so much want to honour you for you knowing what you're doing through all life situations, even though it looks like sometimes you don't. You are God, and we honour you in that. I want to pray, Lord God, for every person here today, Father, with a hand up. We want to be a light shining for you. And if there's anybody here who's put a hand up saying, I want to know Jesus, Lord, come and meet with them. Draw close to them. Draw them into your love, I pray, so that their life gets turned upside down in exactly the same way as it did for Ruth and Naomi, Lord God. Come Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.